we've been through a lot of heaven and hell stuff, and um, this, is, this is not the easy sermon. And in fact, um, I mean, it's already a quarter till, and you're going to be looking at your watches like, when is he going to be done? When we could spend all our time getting all academic about what the Bible says, and, and we'll do a little bit of that, but then I, I could get all like, I don't want you to go there, and I don't want anybody uh, out there to go either, and we could do that, and we will. And we'll try to do both and give this a fair shake. From the Screwtape Letters, that book by C.S. Lewis I quoted last week, he says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. If we treat hell like many do the devil, just a medieval myth that was used to scare people into behaving themselves, that's the surest way to get yourself there. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many, but the way is narrow. The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life, and there are few that find it. Talking about hell is not easy. I mean, some churches have a great time doing it. They pound pulpits and they yell at people and they thump them with Bibles and they get out on the street corners with big signs and bullhorns and they, and they yell at people about it. And that's one way. That's not necessarily my style. Then there are other churches that completely ignore the reality and they say, don't worry about it. You know, that's just, you know, that's an antiquated idea. And, uh, you know, God loves everybody and everybody's going to make it. And that's not me either. Jesus talked a lot about hell. A lot. I mean, it's surprising how often Jesus brought up hell. We have to be open to what the Bible has to say about this, as if we're coming to the subject for the very first time with fresh eyes, able to see and hear a heart that understands more than just what we have in our own preconceived notions, our own images, our own, what our culture says is largely myth about this, uh, about this reality. How Scripture defines and describes this will probably be wider and deeper than, than what we most, most of us think. The more I find out, the more questions I have. Let me just get into some of these images. There are four main images the Bible uses to describe hell. And first one, maybe you've never heard of, it's called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. And for that, we've got to rewind to the Old Testament, to 2 Chronicles chapter 28, as well as chapter 33. Let me read a few verses from 28. 2 Chronicles 28, 1-4, talks about King Ahaz. was 20 years old, he began to reign. He reigned 16 years. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, the, the, the false gods, the idols. And he made offerings in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations around them. Chapter 33 of 2 Chronicles, the first six verses say this. How about King Manasseh? Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. He built the altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord which the Lord had said in Jerusalem shall be my name forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling 
and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. There's debate about this, but scholars have said that in the time of Jesus, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom was used as a trash dump that never stopped burning, smoldering, or stinking. It was in the imagination and the history of the Israelite people that these abominations happened in their history right into that geographical place, right outside the city. And so they used it as a junk heap, a burn pile that attracted nothing but vultures and worms and fire. It was a word picture that was readily available for the people of that day. It was imagery, but it doesn't mean it's not real. Clearly, Jesus knew hell was real. And when he described it as the Valley of Ben-Hanom, he's like, look, you see that? That's a little picture of what that's like. Just because we use imagery for things doesn't mean it's not real. I can say things like, well, you know, my wife is my right arm. That's not my wife. It's my arm. But my wife acts as a strength, as coordination. I mean, she is my help. But she's not literally my right arm. And so when Jesus says, talks about hell as the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, he realizes it's a reality beyond that physical place. But that's a very vivid picture of what this is like. Every time Jesus talks about hell in the Gospels, it's translated in our English Bibles, hell. But what it's said in the Greek is the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. But we don't know what that is, and so we substitute in for, for that. Second image, which is more familiar, fire. Lots of different scripture references here. I'll skip to Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled. There was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. His books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. There's a preacher and author in New York named Tim Keller. And he writes about a conversation he had with an individual that came to him and said, is the fire thing in the Bible real fire? Is it real sulfur burning and brimstone? You know, there's nothing like the smell of napalm in the morning, that kind of thing. Is there something real vividly about this? And Tim Keller says, well, I think it's an image. It could be a metaphor. And the guy was like, Whew, wow, okay, that's good because, you know, And and then Tim Keller concluded with, I think it's something actually a whole lot worse than that. We just don't have an imagination for it. And then there's darkness. Another image for hell is darkness. Outer darkness, to add to that, the three times that Jesus uses the phrase outer darkness combined with weeping and gnashing of teeth used to describe a place. Three different places. Matthew 8 it's used where people who thought they were God's chosen, but they were rejected. In Matthew 22, those who think they can enter heaven without the forgiveness offered by Christ, they were thrown into outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, those who take what God gives them and absolutely does nothing, they don't do anything with what they're given, they are thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. That little book of Jude right before Revelation in the back of your Bibles talks about false teachers having blackest darkness reserved for them. Ever been back, I mean, ever been spelunking down in a cave somewhere and you get your eyes adjusted, everybody turns their flashlights out and their headlamps off and you get down in there for five minutes or so with no light at all. You can't, you can't see your hand in front of your face. There's zero, you sit there for any amount of time and you begin to wonder what's up and what's down. You get so disoriented. Our bodies are created for light. Anybody in the wintertime need more light? You got to get out in the sunlight, sit in front of a, you know, with your house plant, sit in front of the sun for a while. You need light. You were created for light, not darkness, both literally and spiritually and figuratively. And this reality is described as complete, utter absence of light. No possibility of light of life. Nothing positive. No hope. Sheer despair. First John 1 says God is light. And in Him there's no darkness at all. And this is a place devoid of God. Devoid of all light. I don't know if anybody's scared of the dark. But this is a reality. This is an image that hell describes. And the fourth is, is separation. And this is not something common. And it's not something that's mentioned a lot. But in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, it talks about them suffering the punishment of eternal destruction away from, or literally cut off, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. This is describing a people who will be rejected. They're incurring forever punishment of ruin and destruction away from the face of the Lord, cut off from Him. And this is perhaps the most understated, but I wonder if it's the most horrifying aspect of hell. It doesn't speak to most people in the obvious ways that we think of, like burning sulfur. and se Separation of, from, from God is the essence of hell. Being eternally cut off from God's presence, if that doesn't affect you, then maybe you don't know what it is to be fully present with Him, before Him. This doesn't speak loudly to our culture, because one, it's not been made a big deal of by the church. And it doesn't sell to unbelievers. Think about this for a second. I mean, really, how can you effectively tell a person who doesn't believe there even is a God that being completely cut off from this creator will be utter loneliness and hopelessness and terror and emptiness like they've never known? How do they have an imagination for that when they don't even believe this God exists? And why would that bother them? For many, it will be, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Even those who don't enjoy the goodness of God, don't give credit where credit is due. Jesus said the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. Everybody who has breath in their lungs, whether they're believers or not, enjoys the presence of God. They just, some, don't know it. And they have that fully taken away completely absent from the presence of God. I don't think we even have an imagination for that. So there's the images the Bible uses. The valley of Ben-Hanom, the fire, the darkness, the weeping, the total separation. And then there are these questions that sometimes people will throw at us, like, 
Well, did God make hell? That doesn't seem to make sense. Why would God make a couple places that might help us is 2 Peter 2, verse 4. God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Hebrews chapter 2 gives us a really quick idea of this. Hebrews 2, verse 1. We've got to be careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so we don't drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore this great salvation? End of Matthew 25, at the end of this parable, he says to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. This, one of my commentaries says, this region of torment was not prepared for humans. It was designed for Satan and his demons. And there's no hint of it being, it says, remedial or corrective. There's no way to work yourself out of this place into somewhere better. There's no provision to be prayed out of it. And it is to the devil what it must be to those who share it with him. As I said last week, the devil's not in hell presently. He's here on this earth, but he'll be there eventually. And it'll be as much torment for him as it is for anyone else who shares it. I won't take time to walk through Luke 16, the parable, this teaching that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus, but I would jot that down and read through Luke 16 and just meditate on this reality, that teaching about hell. While I address another question that I... I've heard before, and it's a, seemingly a valid one. The question of why would a person get eternal punishment as a response to one lifetime of sin? It seems a bit, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It seems a bit over the top, unfair, eternity for this little bit of time. Is that fair? Is that just? Well, let's take this from the other side. Flip that coin over. And say, why would any of us as Christians expect an eternity of reward for this life of not good, but Jesus doing something in us? It's a gift anyway. And so we're just fine as Christians saying, oh, well, yeah, eternity in heaven. That's awesome. I love that, that, that idea. Nobody's saying, you know what, God, that's a little much. I don't deserve that at all. How about just 500 years worth of heaven and then I'll be done? You know, I mean, I hear nobody saying that. Nobody. We're all good with eternity in reward because of what Jesus has done and we've received it as a gift and it's grace. But somehow or another, eternity in punishment is somehow unfair. We were made eternal beings. God doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Everlasting destruction for humans is not what God wants. He does not delight in it. Which means... It leads me to the most common question, how could a loving God send anyone there? Again, from the great divorce, C.S. Lewis says, there are two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it, and without that self-choice there could be no hell. 
No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is open to them. The problem is in the question. God sends no one to hell. People choose because Jesus said they love darkness rather than light. Here's an analogy maybe to try to break this down. Let's just say that there is a guy with a real big heart of love for a lady. And he wants to be with her and he wants, he wants to have a relationship with her and he constantly he sends her gifts and he sends her flowers and he, he calls her and he asks her to go to dinner and he's smitten. He wants to, to date her, he wants to marry her and, and this lady, she wants nothing to do with him. In fact, she likes this other guy who is actually rather abusive and, and profane and does some really awful things. But the guy with the flowers in his hand is like, no, come be with me, come be with me. I've got this future planned out for us. I've got all you need right here. and I will love you and I'll take care of you. And the lady's like, look, I don't want anything to do with you. Just leave me alone or I'll call the cops. I've got this guy over here who says he's going to beat me up tonight, but it's okay, you know, he's whatever. And, and he doesn't care, but I, I want to be with him. And so the guy with the flowers does what any guy would want to do, and he sees that evil person over there who's going to abuse this woman that he deeply loves and wants to be with. And so he goes to the lady's apartment, and he takes her forcibly out of her place and takes her to his own house and makes her live with him, right? Is that what he does? No. No, that's kidnapping. That'll land you in jail. That's bad. You shouldn't do that. But is that love? Would that be love to show to her? Like she's making a really foolish choice by wanting to be with this jerk over here who's going to just do bad things and ruin her life. Isn't it love for him to say, no, I'm rescuing you. I'm going to force you out of that relationship into one with me. Can love do that? No. But that's exactly what people want God to do. That's the position that people want him to have. My question is, what do you want God to do for those who don't want him? Who want nothing to do with him or put him on the sidelines and really what they want is their own agenda and if they need him, they'll, be, they'll get there. But really, don't ask me to be so committed. I'm, I'm committed to what I, what's in front of me right here. I'll get to you later. I mean, that's heartbreaking, but God will uphold and honor that choice. God will not force anyone into a relationship with him. And again, you're going to get really tired of me quoting C.S. Lewis, but he says this. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? He's done so on the cross of Christ. Do you want God to forgive them? They don't want to be forgiven. Do you want God to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. Look, in the Bible, the reality of hell is punishment and justice for centuries of sin, violence, and the horrors of selfish brutality of people. All that darkness, all that sin needs to be accounted for there will be a day of reckoning. And a God of love who doesn't deal with that, with justice, that is not a God of love. 
Tim Keller puts the idea in, in, in my head, and he said that hell is an extension of God's love. And I don't know how to take that. But a God of justice who doesn't exert justice is not a God of love. The cross of Christ is the place where God's wrath and judgment were satisfied. God doesn't send people to hell because they've been bad. People choose hell because they didn't take on the cross of Christ. Because they rejected, they rejected Jesus' gift to them, and they'd rather take on the wrath of God themselves. They rejected the love of God shown in Christ. They reject the only way to the Father. So when you think about hell, in all of the definitions and all of the imagery and all of the hard questions, in the end, how does it affect how you feel about people? When you think of the reality of hell and people that are going there, is it mostly for those that are in like outside of your circle and in other countries and people that do genocide and, and other you know slave traders and, and child pornographers? Is that what hell is for? Largely for all those other really bad people? And they deserve that. They really should go. Or is it, in your mind, a reality that it breaks you? it really just hurts to know that there are people all around you who've rejected God in various ways. And there will be those of us who lose friends and family to this eternal destruction. There is a hell and people are going there. Does it break your heart? Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying, if sinners be damned, let at least them leap over to hell, in, over our bodies into hell. If they want to perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. And this requires much patience and much love and much time and much relationship. You don't do it by beating somebody over the head with a Bible and yelling at them. I have a friend who um, was in my youth group as I was a youth minister back in my 20s. This kid's 40 years old now and makes me feel old. And he's a youth minister in Ohio. And he, had, uh, he, he gave me a call. Sometimes Craig will call me and he's got a question or he just wants to visit. And he called me this past summer and he's like, Jim, I got to talk to you. I got a funeral coming up and it's really hard. I'm like, what's going on? He said, this kid's 19 years old. He was in my youth group. He graduated last year. And he was really a big part of what we were doing. And he said that he had a friend, this 19-year-old this kid had a friend who was talking suicide. And he was, he was so down, he was ready to do something about it. And he told him, went through the whole, like, do you have a, a way? Do you have a place? Where are you? And so the kid got in his car in the middle of the night and drove to where his friend was who was ready to take his own life and he was on the side of the road. The kid was going to just run into traffic and just throw himself at a truck. And the kid from Craig's youth group got there, got out of his car and ran at this guy who wanted to take his life. And I mean, it was one of those movie moments where you shove him out of the way, you save him, and then you're dead. The 19-year-old took 
the kid and threw him out off the highway but didn't get out in time before he was killed by this truck. He gave his life to save somebody who wanted to take their own. He saw a friend who was on the brink of destruction, hopeless, and he threw himself in the way. And I'm wondering, do we have a heart, do we have eyes to see, do we have a, a, a stance on life that does that, that even remotely wants to, to do that kind of thing for people? Because in reality, no greater love has anyone than he laid down his life for his friends. And uh, so, all academics aside, and, and all, I mean, Scripture, yes, Scripture, definitely important. Jesus, words, center, front. But what are we doing about it? How are you praying for people around you that you know if they died today, there's no chance that they would be in the presence of Jesus? You're not judgmental. You're not condemning. You just know. The fruit in their life, the words of their mouth, you just know. They're not going. They've told you themselves. They've rejected God. Are you praying for them? Are you shining your light in their life somehow? And if so, are you willing to keep doing that and keep putting yourself in the way between them and that truck that's coming? It's not your job to save them. Jesus saves. The Holy Spirit calls. But will you be there? Will you be there to get in the way? And will you give yourself so that we can populate heaven? Let's pray. Father, this is hard. This is tough because people um, are all around us who, um, well, we feel bad even thinking about it. But we... Um, they don't think there's a problem. They don't think that, uh, that, they're, that they're at all at, at any risk. They, they either are rejecting the idea entirely or they're leaning on their own good works and they're a good person and you know, God has to pay attention to that. You've got to pay attention to that. And, and help us in humility and in great amount of love um, to continue to lift up Jesus as the giver of eternal life and the giver of grace and the cross of Christ to take our sin and be our substitute for, for our, our, our eternity that we deserve. We deserve justice. We deserve wrath, but we've not been given it because of Jesus. So help this reality of hell to shake us, to trouble us enough um, that we point ourselves to you and you draw us near and help us to draw people with us. Help us to be a church that isn't known for what it's against, but known for what it's for. Known, it's for people. It's for people who are um, out in, in, in their, their needing of a Savior, but they don't know it yet. And so help us to be a church that loves in truth and not seen as a, a voice of condemnation and, and of judgment. That's your job. You get to choose who goes and who doesn't. That's not our job. So God, break our hearts for the things that break yours and help us to be a voice of light and love in the world around us. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen.